Well, good morning. Okay, as you are coming into the sanctuary, we're so good to have you here today. Um, it's getting a little bit warmer, which is nice. Uh, yeah, yeah, actually, I don't mind that. Yeah, 70 degrees today, and then it'll be back into the 40s tomorrow, so or the day after, so. Um, I, I've been thinking of this passage of Scripture in Isaiah. In Isaiah... It talks about, I was just talking in the Sunday school class about shalom, um, peace. And uh, this author wrote this book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. And he talked about uh, that sin has this way of becoming almost like a parasite. It, it leeches life out of people. It leeches life out of societies. And then it's not only sin is not only like a parasite, but it's like almost a cancer that kind of spreads. And it has this way of robbing what he says, vandalizing shalom, vandalizing peace. And so what sin does, it has this way of sapping you of what real life is. Jesus says, I have come here that they may have life and have it what? Abundantly to the full, but what Satan does is he brings about lies and distortion, and he saps life out of you, and he brings about a lack of peace, a lack of peace with God, a lack of peace within, a lack of peace around. I've heard so many people struggling with what's happening over in Russia and the Ukraine, and we need to be praying. There are believers over there um, there are seminaries over there, and they're just not even Christians. It's just people living in that area. But there are wars and rumors of wars and struggles that are happening all in this world. And so many people are hearing this, and they are losing shalom. They're losing peace. So here's the passage I want you to meditate on this morning. It says this in Isaiah chapter 26, verses 3 and 4. You, God, keep him you, in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord your God is an everlasting rock. I can tell you this, God does not panic. This is not catching him by surprise. Nothing is causing him panic. God knows exactly what is happening. He is sovereignly in control. And if you are his child, you can be at perfect peace. Let your mind be stayed on him. Trust in him. My only announcement this morning is this. Um, well, we had a great week um, with, um, I just lost the name of it. Thank you so much, Community Blend, because my mind is stayed in perfect peace, right? And my mind goes off. But Community Blend, it was so good uh, this week to see our building open and used during the week. Tim and I have talked about this. Using the building during the week is just huge. And just having people being able to come in. Some people were coming from Habitat and coming in. So that was such an encouragement. Uh, Jewel and Craig and their team, thank you so much for your work. And we're looking forward to seeing what God is going to continue to do through that ministry. Uh, today, right after service, we have our administrative uh, meeting, um, annual meeting. If you didn't get a uh, document, it's outside. It's pretty much shortly after the service, after we end, we're going to have that meeting. So don't go too far away. If you're a member, we want you to stay. If you're a non-member, we would love you to stay to learn more about our church. Um, but 
use that time today. And then let me just pray. Just remind yourself of the people that are struggling in our church. Keep them in perfect peace as well. So, Lord, I pray. I pray that you would help us to see how beautiful you are, how amazing you are, how caring and compassionate you are. You are our deliverer, Lord. You are our faithful one. Father, the ground around us may be shaken, but Father, you, the sure foundation under us, never will be shaken. I praise you for that. Father, keep us in perfect peace as our mind is stayed upon you. Help us to trust in you. Father, for brothers and sisters in our church community that are struggling right today, Lord, I pray that you would do amazing works in their lives, Lord, for for Diana Kelly, who continues to struggle, Father, and Victor, who's there to support her, Lord, I pray that you would comfort them with your peace, comfort them with your presence, Father, and give them wisdom as to what they need to do next. Father, for David Mercer, Father, thank you for taking him through a really strong battle with the surgeries, Father. Um, but Lord, I pray for him right now that you would continue to bring the healing and the restoration for the many people in our congregation who are struggling with grief, Father. Uh, the Reinhardt struggling right now just this week, Lord, I, and many others that have lost people here in our community just in the last month or two. Lord, I pray that you would remind them that you are their comfort, you are their shelter. I pray that you would wrap your arms around them. Lord, I pray for the service today. I pray that you would do a work as we sing, that we would sing to your glory and help us to reestablish that peace, understand that peace within and peace with others. As we hear Pastor Tim preach, Father, about Satan's destructive tendencies, help us to be wise to our enemy, Father, and help us to know that the greatest power source ever lives in us. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in this world. And Father, I pray that you would help us to be able to offer that shalom of peace to others. Be gospel-graced people. By your grace and for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Sing with us.
young and old. I was buried. I was buried beneath my shame. Who could carry that kind away? It was my tomb till I met you. I was All my failures, all my failures I try to hide. It was my team till I met you, till I met you. You call my name, you call my name, and I ran out of that grave. Mercy, now your mercy has saved my soul. And now your freedom is all that I know. The old man knew Jesus when I met you. You called my name, you called my name, and I Into your glorious day. 
I needed rescue. I needed rescue. My sin was heavy, but chains break at the weight of your glory. I needed shelter. I was an orphan. Now you call me a citizen of heaven. When I was broken, you were my healing. Now your love is the air that I'm breathing. I have a future. My eyes are open. Cause when you call my name And I ran out of that grave Out of the darkness Into your glorious day You called my name And I ran out of that grave Out of the darkness Into your glorious day Stone, it's rolled away, and Christ emerges. 
So spirit come. So spirit come. Strengthen every stride. Give grace for every hurdle that we make. Some things are hard to say. God, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you that we can sing of saints of old. Those that have come before us, both with us. And uh, those that aren't. We thank you that we can see your faithfulness through the ages, that we can read your word and see those who struggled in the past. The Bible is full of struggle. It's people struggling to trust you, struggling to understand why bad things happen to good people, why circumstances happen to us, Lord. Like Pastor James said earlier, Lord, you are sovereign. You've allowed things. You understand nothing makes you panic. Nothing is outside of your control. And though there's conflict in the world, Lord, right now, literally right now, and all the time, honestly. We know that big conflicts exist, God. We also know that the small conflicts exist. Me, person to person, but also the conflicts within my own heart, the things I struggle with, the things I'm annoyed with about myself, the things that I can't seem to get, get together. But God, we thank you that we can rely on you and trust in you, ultimately for everything, both the big things and the small things. And that we know that even singing about saints of old, and those who have gone before us are with you now, praising you forever. God, thank you that you equip us with your word. Please equip us with your word this morning through Pastor Tim. God, we thank you for this time of worship, and we give you all the praise and the glory. Amen. You can be seated. Amen. Good morning, everyone. It's uh, such a, a joy. Uh, to see uh, so many of you here and getting the church family back together, to stand together, to war together in the cause that God has called us to. So, uh, Carmelo, thank you uh, for leading us in those proclamations this morning. 
I want you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians 6, and at that time we'll also let the children be dismissed uh, for junior church. Ephesians 6, we're going to begin reading this morning in verse 10. Uh, the topic of discussion this morning is spiritual warfare. Um, I don't know how you can look at the world that we live in and deny the reality thereof. It's a discussion that for many they find stretching. For some it prompts images of pitchforks and red devils. And as a church, I think as the church at large, we tend towards two extremes. Uh, one is just simply to deny because we're so modern and too sophisticated for such thoughts. The other extreme is an unhealthy interest in and speculation about. Uh, the church tends to go through seasons of what I think of as hyper-focus. Okay, so when spiritual warfare is the topic, everybody's writing books on spiritual warfare. And there's a sense in which that can have a negative impact on people. It seems that it's making so much of something that we tend to dismiss it. And I would say that we should not make that mistake. The truth is that from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, Satan is addressed as effective and active in diabolical fashions. That he is not to be underestimated, that we are to be fully aware that from Genesis 3 to Revelation, he is active and working and addressed. It's also important to note that Jesus' ministry, his public ministry, begins and ends in spiritual warfare, the Garden of Gethsemane at the end and at the beginning on the mountain in the season of temptation, face to face, for our sake and our benefit, with the evil one. Jesus spoke about the reality of our opponent, but also of his ultimate demise. One of my favorite texts in the Bible that addresses spiritual warfare is Luke 10. The disciples come back from an effective ministry in the power of and in the name of Jesus. And Jesus looks at them and says this. He says, I saw Satan falling from heaven. What that means is this. As the church of Christ in seed form inaugurated its assault on the kingdom of hell. Jesus reflects on the fact that the kingdom of Satan is in a certain path of full destruction and demise. And that the miracles and the casting out of demons that were taking place at the hands of the followers of Christ were just a foretaste of the ultimate defeat of our adversary. So with those thoughts in mind as background, I want you to listen along and read along with me. Ephesians 6 and verse 10. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle, our wrestling is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you will be able to take your stand. And after you have done everything, 
to stand. That is a powerful portion of scripture. We're going to cover that in a little bit of what follows. But out of that first section, I want to make a couple observations. The first one is that Paul is a realist. Paul is cognizant of the spiritual battles that are raging around him. He's, he's cognizant of the enemies that exist in his ministry and in the life of his people. And I think he wants you to know that if you are ignorant of truth about spiritual warfare, you will find yourself in a vulnerable position. And what he tells us in verse 11, that we are to take our stand against the devil's schemes. And what he's saying is this, Satan is strategic and thoughtful and diligent and persistent in the attacks that he launches against the people of God. The word devil literally means a diabolical one, one who lies and deceives to break down. Paul says we're not ignorant of the liar's schemes. The word scheme literally is the word, in Greek it's methodice, it's where we get our word methods, strategies. So when Paul describes and introduces this discretion of spiritual warfare, he is quick to note that Satan is strategic, that your adversary, the devil, the liar, goes about seeking someone to expose, to destroy, and to disable. And that his efforts in that regard are well thought out, like a chess game, strategic. Paul, wants you, also, Paul also wants you to know that Satan is capable. Look at verse 12. Paul says, our struggle, our, and this is the word for hand-to-hand -hand combat and wrestling. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. And then he goes into this list that gives you a bit of a, a panoramic or a, or a broad picture of what we're up against in spiritual warfare. He says, our struggle is against rulers, authorities, against powers of this dark world, against spiritual forces in heavenly places. I don't know how your mind reacts to that list. You could spend a lot of time going through each word. I am not sure that Paul isn't simply in a stylistic way giving us a, 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 a picture, a photograph through words that cause us to say this is serious. I don't know that Paul wants us to classify all of these words and use them to talk about different orientations in the spiritual realm that we can't see anyway. But I certainly believe that he is doing this. He is giving us clarity about the substantive nature and strategic work of that which is against us. He doesn't want the church to be ignorant of the devil's schemes, of his strategies, of his power, and of his working. So in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 10, he acknowledges this. He says, make sure that you forgive the person who has sinned so that Satan won't take advantage of the circumstance of unforgiveness. And listen to what he says. He says, do that. Forgive that person as God told you to, for we are not ignorant of his schemes, of his devices and strategies that he deploys against the people of God to pull them down. In Ephesians 4, 27, we looked at this a few weeks ago, he talks about unresolved anger and says, don't let the sun go down upon your wrath. If you do fail to forgive, you give Satan a foothold. The idea is a place of leverage 
or a beachhead of operation in your life. What is Paul emphasizing? He's emphasizing that in obedience to God's word, we deal blows to that which is against us. But the main point is that he's conscious, he's realistic about Satan being strategic and about Satan being capable. Our struggle, beginning of verse 12, is real. It is a hand-to-hand combat. It is a matter of spiritual life and spiritual death. Part of every Christian's experience is battling wisely. And I want to say this, the more serious you get about your Christian life, the more serious you get about making advances for the kingdom of God, the more opposition you need to prepare for. So this text is going to aim at giving you resources to stand your ground. And as we'll see a little bit later, also to advance the cause of Christ that he has called us to work in. So first thought is this, Paul is a realist when it comes to this realm of spiritual warfare. He knows it exists, he sees its destruction. I would say this to you this morning, I don't know how you could possibly live in the world that we live in today and not at some level be conscious of the fact that there is an opponent to all that is right and good. And it is active and it is powerful, it is strategic. And you need to be biblically wise and biblically protected and spirit-filled so that you can stand. Okay, and that's the concern. That as we live in the world that we all see and tend to complain about, what we really need to do is get strategic about our standing with God and doing his purposes and fulfilling his will in our lives. And as Paul points out the strength and nature of it, He's also an optimist, isn't he? He says on two occasions, verse 10 and verse 13, put on God's provision, put on the armor of God. Here's the optimism, so that you can stand. Folks, listen, a well-equipped believer is able to fight off the schemes of the evil one. And an unequipped believer is vulnerable to his attacks. Okay, so Paul decidedly optimistic, pushes on implied promises. John later picks this up in 1 John 4.4. He says, you belong to God, dear children, your identity, and have overcome the evil one. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Folks, here's what I believe. As you read through the first half of the book of Ephesians, you see all of the resources that Christ is giving and all of them are in some way reflected in the armor that we put on. So the goal is to be saturated in the person of Christ, conscious of the battle that we're in, but optimistic about the outcome. If God is for us, the writer of scripture says, Romans 8, who can be against us? Answer, everybody and everything but who can successfully oppose a person armored by God? The answer is no one. So I want you this morning to see the reality. I want you to see Paul's, just his, his blossoming optimism as he talks about this topic. So that four times the text says, you'll stand, you'll survive. And the question is, why is Paul so optimistic? I think the answer is because this text places most of its focus on the topic of God's 
divine provision for our success. Folks, God in his grace and mercy in this text tells us about the truths that we need. I don't think that the list is exhaustive, but I think that the list gives you enough that if you consciously lay hold of these truths and you cover yourself in them on a daily basis, that you will find that you become more effective and more righteous and more holy in those dramatic seasons of temptation that are bound to come. And in the spiritual battles, you will find yourself able to stand if you put on the whole armor of God. This idea of putting on is in the emphatic and it assumes victory. Where does Paul get his analogy? That's an interesting question, right? From what orientation does Paul get this picture of warring and a soldier well-fitted for battle? And there's two options, honestly. Uh, One is in the book of Isaiah, God is repeatedly talked about as covered in the armor that is present in this text. It's very fascinating. So we'd encourage you to go back to the book of Isaiah and read through and see the places where God puts on a breastplate of righteousness, all right, where he is girded with truth, okay? And, and it's fascinating that we as Christians, when we put on the armor of God, our, our identity is declared in that armor as a child of God because we begin to look like him, His characteristics start to take on a a, a vital presence in our lives. But I think even more so probably in this text, Paul's deriving his understanding of armor for war from the fact that he's in prison guarded by a Roman soldier. Now, whether this Roman soldier who guards Paul has on the full armor, we don't know. Okay, but we know that Paul is familiar with this because of the world in which he lives. He's seen well-equipped soldiers going out to battle, and he has made serious observations about what they do and why they do it. Okay, so we're going to work through this text and look at the armor of God as the cause of optimism in our spiritual battle with the evil one. Okay, so let's work our way uh, through this armor that we are to clothe ourselves with. And we're going to begin in verse 14. Paul says this, stand firm then. So the, just grammatically, I'll lay this out. So the stand firm is the verb that governs everything that's going to be said. Okay? So stand firm by, that's the implication. Okay? So I stand firm, I fulfill that command to hold my ground for God's work. By putting on the belt of truth, by putting on the belt plate, the breastplate of righteousness. So you see, there's there's going to be this call to stand firm by. Okay, so a main verb, and then the rest are participles. All right, that build off of that main verb. There is an assumption that if I'm going to stand, I need to do this, and I need to do this, and I need to do this. These are the ways that we steal ourselves for spiritual battle. Okay, and these are. So vitally important. First of all, Paul talks about standing firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. What does a belt do for somebody that is putting on a uniform or armor? Okay, What a belt does is it it provides a sense of stability. It holds things that are used in battle in place. It 
readies, it centers, it stabilizes. And the other thing that it did for a Roman soldier is it would move things that would impede in seasons of battle. So the soldier's robe would be caught up and stuffed inside of that belt and cinched. And that cinching of the belt would give a sense of preparedness. I, I didn't get to talk to a police officer about this, but I was going to ask this question. That the belt that they wear is substantial, heavier, and wider than the ones that I tend to wear. And it has the purpose of centering and holding all the things that are used in battle. I, my guess is that when a, when a police officer dons himself with the attire for his job, when he puts that on, it has this centering effect, okay, of stabilizing and feeling prepared. Paul here calls it the belt of truth. What would this be? For us. And I would argue that this belt of truth, as you read through the book of Ephesians, is truth about who I am in Christ. You know, one of the things that Satan wants to destroy is your sense of identity as a child of God's. He wants to destroy your understanding of who you are in Christ because if he can do that, he can weaken you and you become vulnerable to his lies. Because of, of all things that he does, he is a deceiver. And the way I destroyed the lies of Satan is by putting on the belt of truth. Truth known, Ephesians 1. Let me just read this for you. Paul's, this is Paul's prayer early in the book. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. The riches of his inheritance in the saints. And his incomparably great power for those who believe. You see what he's doing? He's saying, I pray that you as the church will have an understanding of who you are in God. And that you understand that God is for you. That he has your back. Ephesians 2.10, he wants you to know that you are his workmanship. Created in Christ and by Christ to do good deeds. The idea there is that God is decidedly for you. He calls you his children. Ephesians 2.19, you've been by, by faith brought into his family. You have an identity that is critical to standing. And what Satan wants to do is steal your identity or distort your identity or weaken your understanding of your identity. And Paul aims in this book to give truth to the people so that they understand who they are. It is truth that we must know and it is truth that we must live. So one to three, truth that we know. Chapter four and following, live worthy. How do I live worthy? One of the ways that I do it is I put on the belt of truth. I take all that he said in chapters one to three and I allow it to become part of my self-understanding as a child of God. And in that position, the belt of truth is secured. And that truth then needs to be practiced as a means of warring against the evil one. Folks, you need to know God's truth. You need to put it into practice. And when you do that, it's like putting on the belt of truth. Where that steals you, enables you to stand in days of intense brokenness, failure, and temptation. You need clarity about who you are in Christ. The belt of truth. Next thing that Paul identifies is the breastplate of righteousness. So the, the stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist and with the breastplate of righteousness in place. The purpose of the breastplate, this is probably one of the most common 
pieces of armor that we're familiar with. Its obvious purpose is to protect vital organs from lethal thrust. Okay, yesterday, if you were watching the news, you saw that a news crew in Ukraine was ambushed and uh, fired upon repeatedly. One did not have their Kevlar vest on, and they suffered a very tragic wound. Those that had put on that, that Kevlar vest, that, that breastplate of righteousness, were wounded but not destroyed. So that breastplate has the purpose of saving your life, of protecting that which is most vital. And I would argue that this text here is talking about a righteousness of standing, right? An understanding of where am I with God? So Philippians 3 verse 9, Paul says, I want to be found in him, that is Christ, not having a righteousness of my own, but the righteousness of Christ, which comes by faith. What does that do? That breastplate of righteousness, that protection from God through Jesus Christ gives me a sense that I am right with God, that I am okay with God. I am covered by Christ's righteousness. I am no longer trusting in my deficient righteousness. Therefore, I don't feel vulnerable. Folks, when you were trusting in the righteousness of Christ, it will give you a sense of confidence in the battle. And a sense of confidence as you stand before God. And what God, what God wants to do is give you an assurance that in Christ you have a right standing with him. Your identity is as forgiven. Uh, religion is shed. And I rest my life in him. How does Satan fight against us in this regard? You know what Satan wants to do? He wants to amplify your sin. He wants to make much of your failure. He wants to remind you of your weaknesses so that he can destroy you. God, on the other hand, gives us his righteousness in Christ. He puts the focus on what Christ has accomplished for us. And in that setting, he says, who can bring a charge, an accusation against God's elect? His answer, God justifies. God makes righteous. Folks, please understand this. The path back to God after brokenness is not religious effort. It's not you doing more. It's you understanding that all of my sin, by the grace of God, is covered in the righteousness of Christ. And what does Satan do? He brings charges against us that debilitate and weaken and cause fear. You know what God in heaven says? He says, that's already been forgiven. Strike it from the record. Yes, Tim did that. Tim did this. But through the blood of my son, as he confesses, he is forgiven and cleansed. And that sense of righteousness in standing before God is secured, which eventually leaks out then into righteousness in practice. Okay, I don't know if you remember the passage in Ephesians 4. Paul talks about putting off the old man and putting on the new man putting off the sinful self and putting on this new person. And here's the way Paul says it, created in righteousness, rightly aligned with God's truth and living in a way that glorifies and honors God. So the breastplate of righteousness. Then Paul talks about the footwear of peace. He says, your feet fitted with the readiness that comes 
from the gospel of peace. Now, a Roman soldier's shoes were not like the shoes that we're familiar with, okay? They were largely half shoes that were then held on by straps, kind of like sandals, but those straps would go up rather high to secure and lift. Typically on the bottom of those sandals that were used in wartime were studs, or we might think of them as cleats, something like what would be on soccer or football cleats, okay? The purpose of those cleats is to give stability and to enable someone to do two things to hold a position defensively or to advance against, uh, or to hold defensively and then to advance against in an offensive fashion. Okay, so here Paul's talking about footwear that makes us ready. And it's interesting that here it is gospel sharing that readies us to advance in the battle. Here's the question. Why is that the case? What is the effect in this book? What is the effect of the gospel? What is, it its, what is its effect on relationships amongst people? And the answer to that is found in Ephesians chapter 2. All right, in Ephesians 2, Paul says, Remember that before Christ you were separated from him and you were excluded from citizenship in Israel and you were foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope or God in the world, verse 13. But now in Christ, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And then verse 14 tells us what the gospel does. It tells that the, that the gospel has broken down the wall of hostility. First between Tim Hoff and God, and then between Tim Hoff and Sandy Wagner, okay? So the gospel makes and aligns my relationship with God. He removes the brokenness and reconciles. And I become a son or daughter of God, but I also become your brother or sister in Christ. So Ephesians 2.19 goes on further explaining, you are the household of God. Before you were Jews and Gentiles, deeply divided, hostile, broken, but through the gospel of peace, what happens? You, you understand that sin is forgiven, that your identity changes, and so that former enemies become brothers and sisters. Okay, now in that sense, that hostility that is rather normative amongst humanity is destroyed by the gospel of Christ. Paul would argue something like what I did with my daughters when they were younger. If they were arguing with each other and being demeaning to one another, sometimes I would be like, for God's sake, your sisters. And that hostility between you is inappropriate for people in that relationship. So what does the gospel do? As it is proclaimed, it destroys hostility and it brings what James talked about earlier. It brings peace. A sense of wholeness, a sense of rightness in relationships, that sense of brokenness and fracturedness in our lives is removed because we have been forgiven by God's grace. We experience it on this plane, peace with God. And God's expectation is that we would put that on and go practice that in the world that we live in. We're to be people of peace. Not of antagonism, not of fighting, but the gospel tells us that we are called to Pronounce to people that in Christ, there is hope for peace in our relationships. The book of Isaiah 52, 7 says this. It says, how beautiful on the mountains are those, are the feet of those 
that preach the gospel of peace. It's a very interesting picture. How beautiful are the mountain, on the mountains are the feet. What do feet do? Feet take you places to do your job, to fulfill your task. How beautiful on the mountains, traversing, are the feet that bring the good news of Christ and bring reconciliation in lives where there is brokenness. Folks, Jesus aims to give peace in your home, in your marriage, in your relationship with your kids, with your siblings, with your co-workers, in the context of the church. He wants to bring a sense of wholeness and wellness and that this is a place where we are strengthened together and we need to put on that gospel that says, you're my brother, you're my sister. We are family in God. God is our father. And that gives a sense of orientation a new way of seeing ourselves, not separate, not hostile, not Jew, Gentile, not male, female, but God's children. Okay, very, very unique and powerful. This is the one piece I'm going to tell you. I struggled with the most when I studied this. But then begin to understand that the gospel brings peace and our warring is to that end. The warfare then we engage in does not view people as enemies, but as victims. Captive to the evil one. We go to rescue people. Not to defeat enemies in this context. But to rescue people from the grip of the evil one. To take someone out of brokenness. So that they can begin to experience a deep sense of peace with God and from God. And when we begin to share the good news of Christ. We are sharing the message that can change people's lives and relationships forever. Praise God. The next thing that Paul says is this, verse 16. He says, in addition to all of this, so he's moving away from things that we put on now to something that we hold up. Do you see that, that transition? So in addition to all of this marks a transition, okay? Take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all of the flaming arrows of the evil one. The shield of faith is a very interesting analogy. Uh, the, the shield that Roman soldiers would carry into conflict was about two and a half foot wide and four foot high, rather large. It was curved, typically made out of two layers of wood and then covered either with cloth, fabric, or with leather. Its purpose was to receive arrows, and in the ancient world, you, you watch enough movies, you know this, okay? The arrows are, are, are tipped, and they have cloth, and they're shot in, and they're flaming so that they do more damage than simply to kill someone. They also light up and incinerate. And a lot of that is psychological warfare. It's warring against the mind so that you see those, lob, those volleys coming in. Okay, and so the picture is that the Roman soldier would kneel down or some would say they would crouch behind that shield during that season of volleys coming. They would wait it out standing their ground. And once the volley stopped because the enemy had run out of arrows, then they would launch their attack. Okay, so that's the picture. It's someone who is, and in this case, what does he say? So that we can stand and extinguish all of the flaming arrows of the evil one. I believe all of that is talking about lies, deceit, intimidation, questions about sufficiency, adequacy. You could go on and on and on with the things that Satan tries to raise doubts about to strip you of your effectiveness. Folks, understand this. Satan is not so much interested in your destruction as he is in your being disabled. 
You understand what I'm saying? If he can just render you ineffective, not destroy you, but just set you aside, he's done his job. And I believe that's what he often tries to do to many of us. And maybe this morning you're sitting here saying, you know what? I've been receiving volleys of arrows from the evil one, and I have succumbed. This morning, here's what I want to say to you. God's call is this. In the midst of that assault, that, 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 those legions of doubt, take up the shield of faith. Faith simply is this. It, 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 it is simply our trust in God. It, it is our crouching in his presence, in his protection. 1 John 5, 4 says this. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Isn't that interesting? Our trust in Christ rehearsed and sung and preached and shared is the means by which we, we take up the shield of faith. And with it, we disable the attacks of the evil one. We render his volleys that were right on target ineffective. That extinguishing of the devil's incendiaries is true whether the person crouching behind the shield is shaking in dread and fear. The key is not the strength of the person behind the shield. The key is that the shield has been taken up. The shield that says, God, in this circumstance, I trust you. I'm going to stay faithful to you. And I may be, as one songwriter said, I may be shaking like a leaf that does not render the protection of God inadequate. So sometimes what we think is, well, I have enough faith, but I'm terrified. <laughs> okay? Listen, folks, the reason a soldier takes up the shield when arrows are flying is because he's terrified. So there may be times in my life when I am, I am shaken to the very core of my being. What do I do? Well, you could collapse on the ground and let the arrows slay you. Or you could take up the shield of faith and say, God, I am desperately in need of your protection and your power in this moment. So I take up this shield of faith to extinguish and to destroy the volleys and attacks of the evil one. You know, we've been watching this war in Ukraine and we've been watching an evil man launching volleys of bombs and incendiaries to erase hope. And to destroy courage. And here's what is saddest about all of that to all of us. There is no shield. So what we're watching is people in an incredibly vulnerable situation. And that is tragic and sad. I think the same thing is true for us at times. We feel isolated and alone because sometimes we are. That's why I'm so happy. Well, we're so happy as a pastoral team, as an elder team, to see more people coming back into the fellowship of God's people. Because we need each other. Folks, there is no more pitiful picture than a solitary individual standing in a field, holding up a shield, crouching under an assault from an army. It's pathetic. What God wants you to do is take up your shield of faith, but you're going to see as you get to the end of this text, it's something he wants us to do together. He wants to be soldiers in community, in an army. That's the picture. 
I'm not called to do all of this as an individual preparation. I'm called to do this as a corporate preparation because I should never be warring alone in isolation. There should always be someone at my side who's taking up the shield, who has their armor on, who is ready for the battle. And what does that do? Corporately, that gives a sense of confidence. Take up the war shield of faith. Raise the shield of faith. Neutralize, defeat, and extinguish all of the lies that Satan throws against you so that you can stand. The last uh, piece of armor that he touches on is the helmet of salvation. This would have been a leather metal helmet, typically not terribly comfortable. I haven't, I haven't uh, personally watched movies uh, from medieval times thinking, oh, I'd like a hat like that, okay? Uh, these weren't comfortable, but they were essential. They weren't worn for appearance, not the ones that you used in battle. They had ornamental ones for the parades. But the ones you wore in battle were to take lethal blows. What you cared about was not comfort. What you cared about was the integrity of that device. That when the shields drop and the swords are drawn and the hand-to-hand combat of verse 12 begins, our struggle, that when that happens, I've got something protecting what is most vital, my head, so that I can stand. And so what happens? This helmet of salvation is is a piece of armor at one level that certainly is meant to give a sense of confidence that I can take some blows, I'll survive some strikes, and perhaps I'll live. That was the mindset of a warrior. So he would strap that on, and it would give a sense of confidence. I I, uh, go motorcycle riding occasionally. I don't have a motorcycle anymore, so you can't accuse me of being stupid. (laughs) But sometimes we'll go out west, and, and there's this strange... Like, like, I mean, riding a motorcycle, I, I'll grant that it's not the smartest thing that people do, okay? It is one of the more enjoyable things that I do, but it's not one of the wisest things that I do, okay? There is a weird sense when you put on a helmet that you get a sense of confidence, okay? You get this sense of, okay, if things go bad and I go down, I'm, I'm good, Okay? That's a false sense of security, but the truth is when that's buckled on, it does give you a sense that I'm good, I'm protected. And, and, and certainly you are, but not at a real level. One of, one of the things that I, I always do when I get on motorcycles, I, I have this thought, okay, put on your seatbelt now, okay, which is a stupid thought, right? But that's like, okay, what am I looking for? I'm looking for more security. I, in, in, in that experience, I do feel a little exposed, Okay, the truth is I'm a lot exposed, but I feel a little exposed and I'm looking for something that gives me a sense that everything is okay. In this text, salvation, knowing that I have been rescued from my sin and that it can no longer condemn me, is meant to give a sense of confidence. It's meant to, 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 to strengthen us and to steal us. Confidence that's present in the battle, in seasons of weakness. In Philippians 1.6, my life verse, Paul says, Being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, called you into this battle, 
called you into the spiritual warfare, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Christ. Folks, that's why Paul's optimistic. In this battle, victory is assured as we sang this morning. I don't have to go into my spiritual warfare wondering about the outcome. The question is, will I put on the whole armor of God in its entirety? Because if I do, I will be assaulted spiritually. I will be attacked. I will face incendiaries, lies, and deceit about my sinfulness, about my vileness, about my weakness. Satan will throw all of that up in my face. But God gives me God gives you by grace through faith in Christ alone a helmet of salvation that is meant to give you a sense that I am ready for the battle, that God has prepared me. And what's, what's, what's really fascinating about the, the broader scope of this text in, 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 verse, um, in verse, verse 10, when Paul says, brothers and sisters, be strong in the Lord... That word is actually in the passive sense. It literally means this, be strengthened by the Lord. It's not go to the gym, work out, and, and by your spiritual disciplines, you become adequate. It's not dependent upon you. It's dependent on what God is doing in you, through you, and for you. That's the gospel. And it is that which gives us this deep sense of confidence. Well, the last... Part of armament is the sword of the spirit. Paul says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. If the devil is a liar, folks, if he is diabolical, deceiving, twisting, manipulating, attacking, if he's doing that, the most important thing I need is truth. In this case, the sword of the spirit is this small sword. It's the dagger. And, and, and many have extrapolated out of that that the word used in the Greek here for, for word of God is rhema. It's a, it's, it's a piece of portion of scripture. It's not the entirety of it. Okay, it's pieces that are important for specific circumstances. And as we went through chapters 1 to 3, or, or I'm sorry, 4 through 6, we've explored all kinds of details of Christian living where I need words of truth to help in specific areas of struggle and temptation. Part of preparing for battle is having truth for the struggles that are present in my life or the struggles that I am anticipating in my life. I'm going to work. I know I'm going to be asked to do X. I can't do X. Because I'm a follower of Christ. And you've thought through what it means to be a person of integrity based on biblical truth. We're people of truth. We resist lies with truth, with words from God, from the word of God. And by that sword, we, we kill that lie. All right, we break it down. We destroy it with the sword of truth. Folks, listen. A sword is not for patting people on the back. It's not for poking people. The purpose of a sword is to kill. And so when you take up the sword of faith, the, which is the word, the sword, which is the word of God, you do it conscious that I am experiencing attacks and there are 
lies that need to be destroyed. And that sword of that sword of the spirit aims to be the means by which it's destroyed. We resist lies with truth and with the word of God. Satan lies to you, destroy you. He lies to you by saying that bitterness won't ruin your life. That relational affections outside of your marriage won't allow you to drift. Lies that sensuality won't destroy. That minor compromise won't lead to major trouble. That integrity at work really doesn't matter. And I'm literally walking through chapters four through six. That anger won't destroy. That marriage is disposable and that the consequences are containable. That your children don't need your influence and your protection. That Satan is not powerful and active. The lie that I don't have an enemy when I actually do. Jesus warred with the sword of truth. Folks, I'm telling you, you look through the life of Christ from beginning to end. Matthew 4 to Matthew 24 through 28. Jesus wars against the evil one. With truth. Satan comes and tempts and, and, and seduces to an easy path. Jesus says it is written. And in the garden, Jesus battles, battles in the garden of Gethsemane with, thought, with the thought of averting the cross, but concludes, not my plan, but your will expressed in your word be done. Folks, that's the mindset that we need. To fight off the assaults of the evil one. Psalm 119 says this. How can a young man. And every, every parent in this room today. Raising a son or a daughter. Has had this question go through your mind. How can my child keep their way pure? How can they be protected from the assault. That's held in their back pocket. Called an iPhone. And all of the things that bombard. And that attack. And that call for attention. And that say it's okay. How can a young man keep his way pure? Now I'm going to tell you something, young men and young women, by keeping it according to God's word. By fearing the evil one appropriately, not, not disabled by that fear, but an appropriate sense of respect that causes you to prepare for daily battle by knowing God's truth and putting it into practice in your life. We live in a world that has been deeply deceived. We're believing the lies of the evil one because we're ignorant of biblical truth. You need to arm yourself because you can have all that armor on, but you are not ready for battle because you have no offensive weapon. So all you can do is cower and hide. And God wants so much more. He wants you to stand. The word in verse 13 is to stand against advancing. Proclaiming the good news. Living the good news. For the glory of God. Jesus said, a wise man hears God's word and puts it into practice. But a fool ignores God's word and suffers demise. Satan says, did God say? Folks, I want you to know something. He is a liar. His intentions against you are diabolical. He aims to destroy, even though the book of Corinthians says he comes like an angel of light. He can make bad things look so good. But he is a liar. And you need to fear and understand that. So that you put on the armor of God. And live not in fear. But in confidence. That if God is for me. 
who can be against me? The answer to that one is everybody, but not successfully. Because I have steeled myself in God's power. The way this text ends is very powerful. Paul says, and pray in the spirit. This is spirit-guided, spirit-driven, spirit-directed, spirit-sensitive prayer. Praying about the things that God is putting on your heart as the spirit seeks to prepare you for the struggles that are right in front of you. Our greatest weapon in the battle is communication with God. Both ways, where I hear his truth, where I hear from him affirming my identity as his son, as his daughter. Understanding I have your back. I am protecting you. And the means by which I express to, back to God my fears and my struggles. Why is fear our greatest, or prayer our greatest weapon? Prayer is our greatest weapon because prayer is the acknowledgement of my weakness and God's sufficiency. When I pray, I'm saying, God, I need your help. I can't do this on my own. And when I pray, what am I doing? I am inviting God's presence. One writer said it this way. He says, in prayer, I breathe out dependence on God. In, in, in the, I exhaust dependence. And I breathe in God's power and sufficiency. Folks, think about that when you pray. I'm expressing to God my needs. That's why we tend to pray, right? We should pray more to praise God, to, to give thanks to God. But we tend to pray Wartime prayers. And I think that's what this is about. Okay, where I'm expressing, God, I desperately need, I need your help. Jesus said to Peter, watch and pray. So that you don't fall to the devices of the evil one. My last thought is going to be this. Verse 19. And, and, and by the way, verse 18, obviously, Paul envisions Christian living as a team event, praying for one another, praying with one another. But at the end, Paul says, verse 18, he says, pray for me that whenever I speak, words may be given so that I may fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. And then he says this, he says, pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. You know what that tells me? It tells me Paul's a realist. He understands that Satan is strategic, that he's thoughtful, that he's active, that he's a real opponent. But he's also optimistic. He says, if you pray for me, I will declare it boldly and fearlessly as I should. Folks, that is the seasoned, imprisoned Paul in spiritual battle saying, I'm good. I've put on the armor, but would you join with me so that I may do God's will fearlessly as I should, that I will say everything I should say for the glory and honor of God. The reality is the Christian life is warring together. It's something we do as a community, as a family. I assume responsibility for you and I receive care from you. You understand that? Christian living is not simply about going to church and you getting fed. Christian living is also about me helping you and you helping me at the broadest level. Folks, you want to set yourself up for failure, avoid community and isolate. Satan loves isolated warriors.
They are vulnerable to his attacks. And I would caution you, in the midst of all that we've been through with this pandemic, there is a danger in isolation. And there is a danger in a lack of accountability. It will lead to discouragement and sin that isolates further. And I close simply by saying this. This text is optimistic. And success in battle is dependent upon God's provision, not upon me. But my effort, my putting on God's provision is the means by which we stand together. Paul's encouragement is this. Having done everything, be standing at the end for the glory of God. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for this passage of scripture that fits us for the realities that we face every day. Lord, we are so conscious of the battle. God, I pray that that consciousness of battle would not disable, would not cause us to crawl in a corner and isolate, but it would cause us to prepare to war with truth and the gospel and in that be saving and rescuing people and helping and encouraging each other. God, help us as we uh, enjoy our fellowship now to celebrate together the hope that we have in Christ, the fact that we are family in Jesus. We love you, Lord. Thank you for this truth that helps us to war rightly. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. God of all creation. God of all creation, Lord of heaven's light, descended into evil's darkest night. Infinitely holy, your perfections know no end. Selflessly you died my rightful death By this we know love That he laid down his life God's very own son Came from heaven to die Suspended he hung As he shed his own blood what grace in his pardon by this we know love. Forsaken man of sorrows. Forsaken man of sorrows. Hated by all men. You willingly surrendered for my sin scornfully derided yet in silence stumbling on bearing wrath for all that I've done wrong by this we know love that he laid down his life God's very own son came from heaven 
suspended he hung as he shed his own blood what grace in his pardon by this we know love by this by this we know love that he laid down his life God's very own son came from heaven to die suspended he hung as he shed his own blood what grace in his pardon by this by this we know love that he laid down his life god's very own son came from heaven to die suspended he hung as he shed his own blood what grace in his pardon by this Lord, thank you this morning that we can join together and be encouraged as a community by hearing your word. Help us to stand, Lord. Stand in that faithfulness and trust in you. Lord, there's encouragement in this place this morning by just being together and hearing your word together. But God, then we go from this place, we need to put it into practice. Help us to put on the armor of God this week, Lord. We thank you for this time. We ask you would go with us from this place. We pray this. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a nice week.